but uh, yeah, we were talking about like how society rewards wolves rather than sheep. Go on with the metaphor. <laughs> the I think the human condition allows for certain individuals that may have a certain makeup of their brain infrastructure, chemical mm -hmm. neuro, that doesn't allow for compassion or group thinking or group benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and those individuals' research now is just s seeming to find out that the same conditions that live in psychotics mm -hmm. that do horrible things because they have no compassion is just an extreme example of a brain condition that is present in a lot of people in a far smaller manner, but still there, where mm -hmm. the amygdala is functioning in a certain manner in the frontal cortex, yeah. where your compassion, your feelings, your controls exist, uh, where most people would not do something because that's bad to the other person, that's lacking in certain individuals. They're certainly not psychotics. They're not serial killers. Right. They're functioning wonderful human beings, but they have a certain makeup that causes them to favor acting in a certain way. And then capitalism in our society mm. uh, rewards that behavior. And so you see these type of individuals succeed mm -hmm. and then they become leader roles mm -hmm. and then they kind of direct the corporate world in the corporate actions. And I just wonder if that, as we go further down, we'll realize that <laughs> um, the, the people that I call the wolves mm -hmm. um, that are individualistic and self-serving and extremely goal-oriented um, that as we go with time, we'll realize that we've made a major mistake <laughs> that we need to control. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our community ills are caused by that because these people are the ones that go for power, that go for money, mm -hmm. that go for success mm -hmm. and higher achievement. And our culture um, rewards that. We look upon yeah. that. Um, the and I don't want to particularly point out individuals. And I think that <laughs> I think that there are plenty of individuals that lack that, that succeed. And those are the ones that become philanthropic. They like to give money away, philanthropy. Sure, sure. Um, things like that. Uh, but I think as a whole, I think we have a group of people that tend to rise to the top because society mm -hmm. allows the conditions to exist to reward that particular right uh, i think i remember maker. seeing some sort of study that showed that like the uh, wealthiest wall street people were also uh, had like consistent behavior with psychopathy or sociopathy yeah um and i mean it makes sense because to be successful in those sorts of ventures you have to not care about the uh social repercussions of being a sort of cutthroat individual and people who have a lack of empathy can do that much easier <laughs> without consequence. Yeah. In fact, not only without consequence, but with admiration. Right. Um, but <laughs> the, what I wonder about is what is the untold cost of doing that? Um, it may be a financial gain benefit it may be a, an economical benefit that we've got such a powerful economy and mm -hmm. blah, 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 so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But from, as from a human species and society standpoint, what is the cost? Is the right. cost poverty? Is the cost social inequities and income inequities, mm -hmm. disease, um, mental illness, you name it is, you know, uh, you know, if somebody gets fired from a job, that is a extremely traumatic event. And it right. gets multiplied a million times over every year. Yeah. Um, so what's the cost? But that's <laughs> what I've always kind of wondered. I'm fascinated with 
where that research will go. Mm. Um, and then once you find it, then what do you do about it? If it does hold true that a certain psycho, you know, psychological makeup is, mm. you know, succeeding yeah. and the system's perpetuating it, what do you do to change this? Well, first of all, do you want to change it <laughs> or are you willing to accept that, right. that situation? And then if you want to change it, do you change the person? Do you change the system? Do you change both? And then mm -hmm. how do you go about doing it? Well, I, um, and that's kind of where it starts turning into a ethical problem and, uh, moral philosophy is kind of a, a hobby of mine, which is a weird thing for a musician to have a hobby of moral philosophy. But, uh, <laughs> I think of, uh, Kant's categorical imperative which is uh, basically if a rule is to apply to an individual, it should also apply to uh, everyone else. And if it doesn't prove to be consistent uh, or if it doesn't work whenever everyone else follows that rule, then it shouldn't be a rule that should be applied. And so what that means is um, if, for example killing people becomes a rule to follow, then if everyone followed that rule, then it would be a kind of paradoxical maxim to follow uh, because then there would be no people left to kill and then it could not be a rule any longer um, or uh, something like lying where if... Truth disappears. Yeah, exactly. And so... Um, that's kind of the the logical aspect. Kind of the argument of against capital punishment. Is, <laughs> is how does a society justify an act that the society is determined yeah. to be antisocial? Right, but I mean, it's and it has you, zero. You value. can't kill unless we say that you can, yeah. or or unless the people in power are the ones that are doing it. And what it boils down to is this perceived sense of retribution or justice. It has no economic or, mm -hmm. you know, prohibitive or, you know, right benefits whatsoever. It's, it's just, you did something bad and you, it was bad enough that we think we we need to kill you. Right. Well, there, there's always been, or I don't know about always, but there is a distance between, uh, the implementation of rules or laws or whatever it might be, or guidelines, uh, and the research that kind of shows the results of those things. And so um, it's kind of funny that uh, my my oldest brother was a uh, psychology major. He, he has his master's in psychology. Uh, and in school, they would teach him that people learn in this way better than other ways. And they are teaching them that in the exact way that they are telling them is the wrong way to teach them. <laughs> and so um, people don't learn well in a lecture type uh, setting, as I tell you this in a lecture. Uh, <laughs> and so for some reason, what the information that we have gathered isn't being implemented into the systems that live with the results. <laughs> um, sort and, of do as I say, not as I do. Right, exactly. And we're kind of doing that collectively as a society to, uh, hey, this thing or separate research says this thing doesn't work or it is bad. And we're just kind of disregarding. A lot of times research. it takes too much effort and money to correct it. So no one wants to put the energy into it because there's no reward. Right, there's no yeah. benefit to those individuals. Um, they're either prohibited because they're tasked with doing something else mm -hmm. or there's not a structure to be able to implement something like that. Yeah. And sometimes a lot of those changes are just forced. Mm -hmm. You know, where <laughs> finally something fails enough that we have to go to plan B and oh, by the way, plan B has been over here forever. Mm -hmm. But now I guess we have to pay attention to it because we ignored it. Right. Uh, well, know, what I worry about is the incentive. There's no incentive to really produce change despite the obvious evidence that 
change may mm. be indicated. Right. Well, I mean, the incentive is like making the world better for yourself and your posterity. But if you can just make it better for yourself, that's a lot easier sometimes. That's, that's, that's so kind of esoterical, the, though, right, right. is that we're worried to demand immediate hard <laughs> facts and benefit. And, and usually change costs more than the existing structure. Right. If there's change that saves money, you'll see that. Mm. That's usually got a negative consequence to it. Yeah. Um, but change that really benefits um, everything based upon science. Now, science still... God bless them, are still <laughs> plugging along at it. Um, sure. And when they stop doing that, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> but getting it actually enacted um, is very, very difficult. There seems to be this huge, huge gravitational force towards the status quo and going outside the status quo, mm -hmm. either as an individual or a group. Um, sometimes is rewarded with incredible success and riches like Microsoft and Apple. and mm. But usually it gets sucked back into the status quo or never is, never has enough inertia to get out of the, the right. status quo. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what it's been for a long time. It's just the inertia of we've been moving in this direction for so long. Um, this guy whose podcast I listened to, uh, kind of has this idea that uh, corporations and certain systems are kind of emergent life forms in themselves. And so that, um, or emergent intelligences in themselves. So even though it may be against the uh, interest of an individual within a corporation, to make a certain decision, the corporation itself as a collective makes a separate decision. So if a executive at a oil company decides, hey, we need to stop polluting, uh, they'll be voted out of the company and replaced by someone else, even though uh, it would benefit them and everyone in the company to make the world a better place. Uh, and so the, the corporation is kind of this meta intelligence that's kind of acting in interest, kind of counter to the individuals within it. Well, that's occasionally you can, because <laughs> it's the profit line and the shareholders, and that's what kills a lot. Because usually I think they'd be more than happy to act in the benefit of society mm. if it was also their benefit. Too often, though, what people perceive as the benefit of society mm -hmm. clashes directly with their perceived benefit or proper place in the world. Mm -hmm. And then it's an argument about who's right. Now, right. if you're on one side, you believe <laughs> that you're right. If you're on the other side, you believe you're right. So now there's no incentive for change because you both don't agree it's right. Right. Um, <laughs> now, when they both agree that it's right, um, either by circumstance or just by general agreement that after an assessment, then you could see actually rapid change and move in that direction. But, you know, the, the oil case that you brought up mm. is there's arguments that the pollution that we're doing is minimal mm. and the changes that you want may reduce pollution, but it will also cause 200,000 people to lose their jobs, result in 45 mm. suicides and blah, blah, blah. And are you 100% sure that it's going to reduce whatever you're trying to reduce? Sure. And make the world a better place. <laughs> um, so there, then you get into the argument and then I think you're right. I think, you know, corporations can be learning organizations mm. and uh, organizations that act in their own self self-interest mm. um, humans tend to do that to a certain <laughs> degree anyway um, but it's also I think it's also disagreement about what's right right and wrong I think mm. that's the whole climate change thing is mm -hmm. is people either believe it is 100% certain that we're going to hell in a handbasket within 30 <laughs> years and the planet will be dead of humans or <clears throat> this is all a big hoax mm. 
Um, I love George Carlin's take sure, on that sure. back in the 80s. Yeah. He said, mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, save the earth. Why do we have to save the earth? The earth will be just fine. The <laughs> earth is 4 billion years old. It's been through worse cataclysms than we could even think about doing right now. Mm. And it's still here. It's the humans <laughs> that are screwed. Yeah. Um, so you're not trying <laughs> to save the planet. You're trying to save the species. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's just enough science that will make you question the other science. Mm -hmm. It's not universal. And we really don't know. And unfortunately, we could be waiting to gain full information before mm -hmm. acting. And that's too late. And uh, we run across that paradox in uh, disaster management all the time. Sure. You can never get complete information sure. before you make a decision. Mm -hmm. But you got to make a decision. Yeah. Um, and then you have to be able to adjust if that decision was the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to make a decision without clear information. Right. And where disaster management fails a lot of time is they wait for exact information. Sure. And you don't get it in that environment. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's kind of going on a lot of times is we're waiting for the absolute 100% yeah. definitive proof that if we do X, then Y will happen. Mm -hmm. And the only way to stop Y is to stop X or modify X. And we're not going to have that. Right. That well, it seems like the the value is greater in the uh, people value the notion of certain information more so than the ability to adapt if with whatever information. And so uh, rather than valuing the ability to adapt, we're just kind of trying to focus on what we know for sure, because humans are bad at making bets. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, then humans aren't, you know, it's always, you know, NIMBY, which is not in my backyard. <laughs> um, yeah. Humans are great with NIMBY is I'm all for saving the planet, stopping pollution, whatever type of societal beneficial program you want until you inform them that gas will be $7 a gallon. Sure. Um you know, and you have to keep your house at 65 degrees, which is totally livable, but mm. not the comfort that you're used to. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, no, I don't want that. Right. And it may just come to the point where they're forced to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully the planet will still be able to accommodate the human race uh, <laughs> when that happens. Um, I have my doubts. I'm not sure the human race... As it currently is construed and organized, mm. we'll be able to react appropriately. I think once it hits crisis, they will. Mm. Um, I just hope that when they hit crisis, that it's not a irreversible <laughs> crisis. But it's going to take, a lot of times it takes crisis to get things moving. Right. Uh, um in the oil industry, then you start getting into politics. Sure. And the whole dirty world of politics. <laughs> And you can forget that once you get into politics without a significant political change, um, <laughs> we're not going to see a whole lot of significant societal change. And you talk about an organization that is designed to self-perpetuate in its own interest. Right. The Republican Democratic Party are the two <laughs> biggest organizations that do that. They can change laws to change mm -hmm. Don't, you can't get third-party viewpoints anymore. You can't right. get third parties. And um, if you combine that with people that are only capable of achieving power and stuff like that, you've got to... And acting in their own self-interest. You get really discouraged really soon. <laughs> the only thing is that you go back to the individual human, mm -hmm. and that individual human's innate goodness mm -hmm. and innate want to make the world a better place because mm -hmm. I really think they all a human does want mm -hmm. to make the world a better place yeah um, that's the only saving grace that we have now I worry about us as a society having so many creature comforts that we're not willing to give them up sure or modify them because some of the changes would require that type of thing mm. um but, you know, we've given them up and modified them before, so... Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> there's still hope, but boy, it sure looks dark. Um, yeah, I mean, I've kind of in my science fiction brain, I just try and imagine like a, uh, I think it was Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke that wrote a book uh, where it was like a benevolent alien species that kind of came in and saved the world. Yeah, we've always joked about it. We would need as a benevolent dictator. Yeah. Um, which is the same concept. Yeah. Is, is somebody with the power to disrupt everything, but still would have... In, in the right direction. Yeah, in the right direction. So maybe <laughs> that'll happen. Who knows? Um, yeah, but there's then, always... Anytime we've put, quote unquote, benevolent dictators in place, it uh, never quite ends up right. Well, if you have a true <laughs> benevolent dictator, like Charlemagne was a benevolent dictator. He, mm. he tried to advance mm. things. There are some. Constantine probably was. Mm. Um, lately, though, we've been kind of short on the benevolent dictators. <laughs> it's gotten a little bit more complex to, yeah, to allow. Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, even though we think they're benevolent, then we find out that they're not. Well, usually by the... Just in order to become a true dictator, right. you really can't be benevolent because you're going to have to create some real big and issues. Crack some eggs in between or yeah, in the process. So, <laughs> um, well, kind of thinking about the the adaptability sort of thing, I mean, as you kind of just heard that my three things are uh, lumber fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong, and I, I had that value of I might be wrong as kind of this appeal to oh, it's not adap- a cop out? adaptation. Well, I mean, it is, but uh, <laughs> it's sort of, um, you, you don't want to be wrong. And so it's kind of a strive towards the, the changes and kind of learn as you go. Uh, and kind See, of I would replace that with, uh, I may be wrong, it's just that uh, the change that makes it all right may not be what you and I expect or accept. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, but I mean, any time that uh, anyone has kind of made the absolute claim of like, this is definitely the right thing every time... Uh, seems to end up with egg on their face eventually so (laughs) um but what you were kind of saying about how even in in your line of work the uh trying to wait around for enough information to make what seems to be the more informed decision uh isn't it better to just be in a position of adaptability so that whenever the information changes, you can go either way. That's the whole key to it. And I think that's one of the problems that we don't, we're not willing or we don't put the process in place to adapt. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have disaster response organizations and other organizations mm-hmm. as well, that if you put that, cause you have to have a monitoring system mm-hmm. as well. And then you have to have the ability to interpret the monitoring, whether it be data, what have you, mm-hmm. um, to see where your decision is going, mm-hmm. um, then to be able to adapt quickly if you need to. Right. Uh, and then sometimes your decision is going to result in something that the result is negative, un- unperceived, and it mm-hmm. happens so fast, then you just have to be able to, okay, I can't change that, so I have to acknowledge that that didn't work and mm-hmm. now go to plan B. Right. And there's, there's, it's half and half. Sometimes you can adapt and change midstream. Mm-hmm. Other times when you adapt, it's the effect has already occurred. And now you're not adapting to your decision. You're adapting to the results of your decision. Right. Um, and I think part of that it, too is... What we is, do a lot of times is we try to justify the first decision saying it wasn't a bad decision. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. Even though it was. Well, and, and that's, that's kind of a, a mistake too in, in the... <laughs> it might be better to just kind of acknowledge, Hey, we made a mistake. We're kind of moving forward with this mistake. Uh, and I feel like, uh, among the many things that people find very difficult to do is, uh, admitting when they are wrong and kind of moving forward from there. It seems like failure is never an option for some reason. 
because our society <laughs> does not does not accept it or reward it. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's it's a lot easier for everyone if you just kind of own up to the mistake you never, and kind of move You never hear the there. statement that success is our desired goal. You <laughs> hear the statement failure is not an option. Sure. Um, <laughs> and it's black and white and it's failure means you're a loser in the United States is not losers. <laughs> so now when you have to make a decision that could end up in failure, now you get decision lock because you make a decision it could have catastrophic consequences to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't want to make the decision. Sure. So then you delay the decision. <laughs> um, or you obfuscate or whatever, which draws mm-hmm. people like me nuts. It's kind of lead, follow, get out of the way. Sure. And if it's bad, try to make it right and mm-hmm. adjust accordingly. Sure. <laughs> and don't be afraid to you know say you screwed up because you cannot do any time-sensitive response or action mm-hmm. without the risk of failure and without the probability of failure somewhere along the line. Right. And it doesn't have to be disasters. It could be anything that sure. any activity because of a timeline or a competitive market or an opportunity, a window of opportunity where mm-hmm. your cultural, you know, temperature is right that you can pull this off. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, if it's time sensitive, and you can't wait for all the information to make the decision, your decision is going to probably have some fail points. Sure. So it's better to decide to adjust from the fail points, try to avoid the catastrophic fail points that kill the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't do any good to have a company all ready to adapt to a failed decision if that failed decision eliminates the existence of the company or kills a bunch of people or sinks battleships or whatever. Sure. You know, melts Greenland or what have you, but um, <laughs> um, short of that, then you just got to be able to adapt. And I think those are the people that uh, succeed both in society and in the marketplace. I mean, mm-hmm. those are your entrepreneurs. You look at an, any entrepreneur, uh, probably any successful artist, um, failure has been a large part of their life. Yeah, exactly. Um, and where they have succeeded is... Number one, it hasn't been totally catastrophic. They haven't mm. killed themselves or killed somebody else or whatever. Sure. Um, but then they've also adapted to it. Um, mm-hmm. It's those that can't adapt to it or just hold steadfast. You know, this widget is the best widget. And even though <laughs> for the last five years nobody's been interested in it, I'm going to keep beating on this widget. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually you run out of the ability to produce the widget because right. it was a failed thing and you just kept going on. Whereas, why aren't people buying this widget? What do I have to do to make this widget different? Right. Um, and that's what an entrepreneur does. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I took a beating. I made 50,000 of these things and I sold five. Mm-hmm. But now I'll change it, make another 50,000 and see yeah. what happens. You got to adapt. Yeah. And there are some cases in which, yeah, where they kind of a person will persevere in spite of all of the the pushback throughout. And then, yeah, maybe they come out the other side and kind of that whole process needed to happen for it to kind of yeah, explode music, in the you success know what I see in the where end. That's but... going on in, where I see that is in music. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to sound like an old fogey or anything <laughs> like that, but today musicians, because of social media, the, the ability to stream and the change mm. in the whole marketplace, um, they can have success without that failure process. Mm-hmm. Um and I just don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> uh, whereas in the past, the old days, whatever, usually you had to, it's, you know, there were a lot of one hit wonders, but mm-hmm. usually if you had a successful musician, there was a lot of failures or, or learning know, in between. Yeah. In between. And that helped formulate the, the, the musician yeah. to the point where they were you know, producing music that people liked, but, then again, were those even an influence or were they just part of that person's life and it really had no effect on the music or the ability of people to perceive <laughs> it? You can see it in bands, though. Usually bands that, you know, when you have group dynamics mm. and either the band implodes, which most of them do at some point yeah. in time, but if they don't implode, 
you seem to hit this certain nirvana point where <laughs> they've gotten all their dirty laundry out. They've had all mm -hmm. the fights they're going to fight. They're musically in click and they're carrying on. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always interested in older bands that still act like bands. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we're losing that with the, uh, you know, the indie movement and stuff like that. I think the indie movement is, is wonderful because you're getting talent exposed that mm -hmm. wasn't exposed before. Yeah. The, the difficult part is that, um, since the, the music industry and like the whole system is kind of set up to where, uh, I mean, all the majors are kind of like, we don't want anyone that isn't going to be a big hit. Um, and a little bit that way with Indies as well, but it's like, there's no infrastructure in place to allow people to grow. Um, and the, Labels are kind of only signing artists that have kind of already proven success by themselves. And so, um, I mean, even we were talking about Jackson Brown earlier, um, and he was saying that he, he was dropped by, uh, his first label and he, he had some great stuff, but some stuff just wasn't working and, uh, had to go to somewhere else and I mean ended up with David Geffen who was <laughs> a far better decision anyways but uh, uh, the yeah that David first... Lindley also helped him out quite a bit too mm. the musical genius that that gentleman <laughs> but um, the the difference being is that like he at least had that first jumping off point to where he was able to kind of try stuff and grow as an artist and be able to uh, get those mistakes out of the way first so that he could continue on to do more things. And nowadays it seems like, uh, one, the, the market is so saturated that it's hard to tell what even is uh, a hit or, or what could be a hit, whatever that might mean. Uh, there's kind of not really a perception of an a and R person anymore. Cause everything is just out there at all times. Um, and so kind of the artist has to prove themselves first before being given the opportunity to then grow more. But at that point they don't really need a label anyways. Yeah. It's, <laughs> what I was kind of wondering is cause they can self publish now, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I self publish and, <laughs> Oh, well, hell, I would too if I could have that ability. Yeah. And, um, so what is the advantage or what role does the music industry serve now? Well, the the role that labels kind of serve is, is yeah, helping people. Labels. Right, so. is helping people make something uh, kind of that's out of someone's reach. So in the same way that like a uh, home loan is like, you wouldn't be able to normally buy a house with whatever sort of income that you might have. But if you get a loan, then you're able to afford the so thing. So what type of expenses are they fronting? Equipment, um, studio yeah, time? Uh, stuff studio like time that? and marketing. That's kind of the two biggest uh, things. It costs money to... Uh, get musicians, get good recording equipment, get it mixed and mastered and distributed and get good uh, pictures and marketing and promotion and all that stuff. And that's... Uh, but the, is that still relevant? Uh, yeah. I mean, the fact that Taylor Swift's face was on Amazon boxes uh, made it to where people listened to more Taylor Swift when that album came out. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I, as a independent person can't get my face on Amazon boxes and that I don't have access to that kind of, uh, market or that kind of exposure. And so, uh, whatever kind of budget it took for Taylor Swift to have marketing to reach, literally people's homes on the packages that they open is a budget that a normal indie person wouldn't have. 
Um, and then, yeah, I mean, recording is expensive if you want it to get to a certain quality. Um, and yeah, the, the amount of stuff needed to record, uh, has gotten cheaper over time as technology has gotten better and all that. But, um, not everyone has a quality environment to record drums in, for example. Uh, and so... And sometimes people just kind of deal with it anyways, and that kind of becomes the sound. And so you kind of have that garage sound, that DIY thing, and people get known for that sound, but uh, some artists aren't going for that sound either. And so uh, it's not even necessarily... Because, uh, again, if I'm sure it would have been a lot harder for someone like Jackson Brown to have like a a, a gritty garage sound from just like a normal singer-songwriter perspective, uh, I don't know if that would have worked as well if you, you know, had these really talented musicians in a good studio environment to record the way that they had. Um, or, you know, the Eagles, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, their first, their initial stuff, though, didn't require a whole lot of production. They kind of... Um, Stood on their own. I mean, it was mm -hmm. basically, you know, the same, like James Taylor, same way is, mm -hmm. um, you, you have, at least you have the perception that this doesn't require a whole lot of production. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just a man, his guitar and a microphone. Sure. Um, but then I remember seeing an article about sweet baby James, no fire and rain, fire and rain. There was, mm -hmm. there's a drum sequence mm -hmm. that made her, that made the record they said is yeah, uh, yeah and and without that drum sequence from a studio musician or what have you mm -hmm. it would have just been number one another one of a thousand singer songwriter ballad type stuff right exactly. so i don't know where the you know in the old days how much the production was needed to where they had to sell their soul to the, the label <laughs> sure. um but i i was always in the impression that with the advent of cheaper recording equipment, mm. uh, the internet, uh, you know, self-marketing scheme, self-production, mm. um, that type of stuff that it gave a lot more opportunity to musicians today that musicians didn't have, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 right. years ago, whatever it was, because they had to depend upon, you had to go to a recording studio to get anything close to quality. Exactly. Um, and you had to have marketing because mm. you didn't, you couldn't self market. Right. Um, but what you're saying is that it's still important because you still. It is. And it's also just different in the same way that you kind of talked about how uh, technology kind of helped your job and kind of added layers of complexity that hurt. Um, it's that cool, kind of yeah. thing too that. Um, sure. I mean, I could, uh, or any musician could become Instagram famous, whatever that means, and really just like become viral. Um, but it's, it's really in how you use that virality, uh, that if, if someone doesn't kind of jump on that or make the right decisions with that, uh, it could just be. A spark and it's gone. One hit wonder. Again. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and that's why some people have good managers because, uh, like maybe the artists themselves wouldn't have known this, but like a manager would have the connections that maybe an artist wouldn't have had or the artist. I mean, the other hard part is that artists are also becoming their own managers. And so all of these things, that you have to focus on, like, what kind of uh, content pleases the algorithm gods. Uh, and if you spend all your time trying to appeal to the algorithm and you're not making music, then the music is going to suffer. But if you're spending all your time focusing on making the music better, then your social media presence is going to suffer. And so it's not so much that it's, like, necessarily easier to make it as an artist, it's the 
probability uh, has gone from zero to non-zero, uh, <laughs> but it's still complex in being able to make a difference because now it's it's a, a vast ocean of people that are all trying to do it. Um, and it seems that money is kind of the thing that separates that too because, yeah, you can pay for just internet ads and, uh, you know, some Facebook ads here, some Instagram ads there, some Twitter ads and stuff like that for the market that you know would be appealing to your stuff uh, can make all the difference. And that, yeah, I mean, $100 is a very different amount to different people. Um, so it, it varies. <laughs> it's just become more complex. Uh, and in some cases, yeah, it can make all the difference to uh, to someone who kind of does become viral in that sense. Or there's stories of artists who have kind of gradually, kind of in a linear fashion, just kind of kept going upwards uh, over time. And that's another way that it's worked for people, but it's it's just gotten more complex, not necessarily easier. But at least the recording of music has gotten easier and the putting out of music has gotten easier, at least. There are free platforms in which uh, people can put their stuff on the internet and it works. Uh, and they don't have to pay any money. Um, but how anyone gets to those is now the question. <laughs> it kind of was the question uh, the whole time, but now it's on the artist too, rather than a record label or a booking agent or publicist or whatever all those things might mean. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, that might be also why, uh, the, the flavor of modern music has kind of changed because of the layers of complexity that kind of go into it, uh, the kind of older music used to have just a very simple, just an artist records a thing and then the record label just does the rest and you kind of get this perception that like the artist is this, this one thing. Um, and nowadays I'm like any new artist, I'm just kind of skeptical of <laughs> because I don't know how much actually went into the production of the whole thing. Um, whereas before, like I know it was, you know, a guy and his guitar. Um, but nowadays it's, it's a lot more than just a guy and his guitar. It's a guy and his guitar and a lighting rig and a good camera and some money into marketing and all that stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I still have my, I've run across, well, my taste of music was, and I think a lot of people's taste of music is established in their teens sure, and early sure. years. So, and that tends to stay there. Mm. <laughs> um, but there are groups that I like, like Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think they're an incredible band. And mm -hmm. I like them because not only are they, what I can perceive, talented musician wise, mm -hmm. but they're also a band that, stuck together and you can tell when they're playing that they played thousands and thousands and thousands mm. of hours together. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's just as enjoyable, uh, especially when they decide to go off on their own little journey musically mm -hmm. and they're able to do that and produce something that is worthwhile to right. listen to as opposed to just noise. Um, yeah. Um, you don't see long lived bands. I mean, what bands are still around from 2000? Coldplay? Yeah. Um, and also not in the same nature that they might have been. Um, I mean, like, for example, Maroon 5 has been around uh, since kind of that time as well. But they've kind of shifted from this is a band with a singer and guitarist and drummer and stuff. And now it's just kind of like 
the lead singer and others, <laughs> um, which is kind of what worked with the paradigm shift of like the internet and whatever that might mean. But well, yeah, and it's also part of you know it all depends. Are you you used to market a group, mm-hmm. and then the individual listener would not mm-hmm. only identify with the music but they identify with the people in the group mm-hmm. and then that varied everything from you know the doors they only just knew jim morrison right but the beatles they knew all four exactly uh that type of stuff mm-hmm. um so it was probably harder to just go solo with you know so and so in friends right if you were <laughs> then you're then you're just a solo artist not a mm. band. And then right. people wanted the band because that's what they were familiar with. And when right, the Beatles exactly. broke up, you know, all four of them started doing solo projects and it was all crap. Yeah. Well, it wasn't crap, but it was perceived Not as Not as good as. Yeah. And it's like, okay, the, 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 the <laughs> some of the four um, was something mm. special, but each individual part wasn't mm-hmm. all that great. Although Harrison's All Things Must Pass was pretty good. Uh, yeah but now it's I mean it's just are there still groups out there there are but it's not as um, it's not as focused on like in the same way that people knew that it wasn't Roger Daltrey who wrote the songs in The Who like Pete Townsend wrote the songs and he was the guitarist and like the whole dynamic of the whole band was kind of the, the thing that people knew about it. Um, nowadays it's kind of just assumed that the lead singer is the thing. Um, even if it might be a whole band that makes up the whole thing. Um, I mean, even nowadays, uh, like panic at the disco actually started out as a band, uh, I think it was four or five people um, and they would write songs together and stuff. And over time, uh, as they became more popular, more people kind of dropped out of the band. And so now uh, Brendan Urie, who's the lead singer, is kind of just interchangeable with the name Panic at the Disco, even though it started out as a band. And now it's just him. So how does that allow a musician? Oh, uh, uh, you know, supporting position, bass player, keyboardist, whatever. That, you know, you've got a duet or you've got a duo. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, because that used to be a huge battle that would go on for artistic recognition mm-hmm. of your contribution and value, where <laughs> it used to be you just pitched into the collective whole and that's what you did. Mm-hmm. And the collective whole got, you know, credit. Right. Um, now you're saying that if the lead singer is the artistic producer, does that? eliminate lead singers who can't write um and does it eliminate bass players that can right well i guess it depends on like the the how you market it and if you're selling that successfully because it's it's hard to do uh especially in such a like you know front man facing uh market uh, with just even just YouTube and Instagram, um, that the camera is not going to stay just on the basis. The basis wrote all that stuff or whatever. Um, I mean, you might, if you get into interviews and stuff, but that's like, if you, if you take the people who like watch a music video versus the people who watch an interview, uh, I'm sure all the people that watch that music video just kind of assume that the person who's singing is the one who wrote it. Um, Or in other cases, it's kind of like people don't care if, if they wrote it or not, they don't care who wrote it. Um, Katy Perry doesn't sing her own stuff. Um, Rihanna doesn't sing her own stuff. Uh, Neither of them write songs. Uh, They, there's a, a team of songwriters and they, 
pitch songs with the label and stuff. And, oh, this song would work great for Adele. This song would work would, uh, would work great for Rihanna. And this song would work great for Katy Perry. And those songwriters kind of pitch their songs to the different artists to sing. And so uh, it's not a part of That's the, been going on, though. Yeah, yeah. Forever. But it, it's not a part of the identity of Katy Perry to say, I write my own songs. It's not relevant. Um, She's not a singer-songwriter, but nobody cares. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, she's a singer, and people like that, uh, but that's that's it. And, and an entertainer, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas Taylor Swift, it is kind of known that she writes her own songs and stuff, but it's kind of become a part of her image to be associated with that, that she writes the songs about the ex-boyfriends and stuff like that. Yeah, you kind of wait for her to have some tragic thing in her life so you get a new album. Exactly. Um, and which kind of makes you question, like, are the things in her life happening naturally and then she writes music about it or does she cause things in her life to happen so, so that she then she could have music about it? <laughs> Um, I always thought that was kind of strange because it's like I wouldn't want to be a boyfriend because her financial success depends upon our relationship ending. So (laughs) she has one or two happy songs about relationships that she's been in that didn't end up badly. So maybe. (laughs) Um, I think nowadays what people perceive as success in music is making a living like not so much like becoming a huge worldwide hit but just making enough money to survive and continue to just make music and make money off of it to just keep that cycle going which is kind of just the bare minimum but like that's successful enough and so really you know i think that and I don't know, this is just me speculating, but I mm-hmm. think most of the musicians since 19, oh, I don't know, 60, 70, whatever, mm-hmm. if they're truly a talented musician, they didn't really care about the money a whole lot. Mm-hmm. They cared more about the music and the ability to create what they wanted. Right. The Beatles, I mean, they got to the point where they wouldn't tour because right. it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Um, and then there's, I'm sure there's some that wanted to be a rock star with all its trappings and sure. wealth and grandeur. But the really, um, you know, I think someone like James Taylor would probably have been just as happy making a comfortable living and that's it. Mm-hmm. And being able to create and perform yeah, how and where he saw fit. And I think a lot of them are like that. So that may actually, you know, I guess there's still super duper rich Taylor Swift's, Katy Perry's, Rihanna, mm. you know, Beyonce, stuff like that. Um, but it may actually be a good thing for the artist, <laughs> mental welfare and everything else, is if you still can make enough yeah. to live comfortably and continue doing what you, yeah, because musicians don't, it's not a trade that you really learn. It's kind of something that's in you. Either you got it or you don't, and then it's refined. But I think it's in you. I kind of beg to differ. I think that... You think that... <laughs> I mean, you can be 12 years old and say, I want to be a musician. Yeah. Like I'm going to be a carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, having been uh, a teacher of young kids. Uh, I, I worked at school of rock for a little bit and, um, talent exists. Um, and it is a factor, but not as much of a factor as people would think. Um, it's, I kind of consider it more as like where you start in the race. Um, And so someone who has kind of a a natural ability uh, might start farther off in the race. But if they're not really running in that race, then they're not going to make it. Yeah, I don't know about talent. I'm talking about the drive and the internal contentment with making music. Yeah. And I mean, I think, sure, that drive uh, is something else. 
But yeah, I think that people I've, can work I've always really think, hard. I've always thought that that drive is there. It's not, you can't learn the drive. Yeah. Um, where you get to the point where you're making music for music's sake. Or yeah. for your own artistic satisfaction. Yeah. No, it, I definitely agree with that. Some people are just artists, and that's what it is. <laughs> and that that is kind of where where I'm at, is that... Uh, it's not about, I mean, yeah, I would like to make money off of my music, but it, it I have to, <laughs> like, I have to make it, uh, I have to make music. I have to make art, whatever that might mean. That's what I'm just saying. Yeah. Is that, you know, a carpenter, some guy can decide to be a carpenter, but he mm-hmm. doesn't have this driving innate need to mm-hmm. hammer nail or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, he could, he or she could just go off and do something else. Whereas, if you have that innate musician in you, mm-hmm. no matter what you're doing, whether you're making music or not, you still have to make music in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of born innate, and really probably separates the wheat from the chaff to a certain degree. Because, yeah. at least what I perceived as the normal process. Of a musician's life, there's always some gully or some pitfall <laughs> that if you don't have that innate mm. physiological, mental, spiritual need to make music to carry you through that, then you just give up on it. Yeah. Uh, unless you're just one of these people that just have, you know, the God-given talent or what have you, mm. and you don't really care whether you make music or not, but, oh, if you want me to make music, I've got the ability to do it over here. But right. I can also perform brain surgery next week and stuff like sure. that. But and, think, and there are some people like that who... Uh, yeah, they disgust you, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, they don't have to work, it's there. Sure. Um, but I kind of... This comes up very often... Uh, in music, but in other contexts that, um, there's, there's kind of three things in, uh, people say in in the music business, but it's kind of in business in general, which is if you show up and are on time, if you are good to work with, and if you know your stuff and you're good at it and you only need two of them. Um, so if you show up and you're on time and you're, amicable and good to work with you don't have to be the a magical guitar player or whatever that might mean because people prefer to have the other two because there can be someone who's like the greatest guitar player ever but if they show up an hour late and make everyone wait and they're a complete jerk whenever they show up uh it doesn't matter how good you are at your instrument or whatever it is that you're doing people aren't going to want to work with you anyways but there has to be at least a minimum layer of talent. If you show up and are friendly and everything like that, but don't know yeah, yeah. <laughs> how to play your instrument or can't play to the level that they need you to play. Yeah, just just enough. Cause, and that's the thing. If, if, you're, if you bring those other two, especially in a field where any of them are scarce, uh, <laughs> if, if you're good enough to a certain point, people will want to work with you to get it to to the point to where it's good and uh, it's better to work with those people anyways because it's easier to work with because if even if that great talent is really good, they might not be doing the thing that's appropriate for the project, whatever that might be. And so even if someone is like maybe not the greatest uh, singer or something, they might be willing to work with you and make it just right and get you the right take um, instead of giving you a phenomenal take in the wrong style. (laughs) Um, That studio time costs money, and if they're late, somebody somebody foots the bill. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, that drive is kind of necessary, um, but not everyone is going to be... uh, I mean, even myself, I'm not the greatest 
a guitarist or singer or whatever. I, I know that there are people that are better singers and better guitar players than I am. Uh, but I know what I'm going for and I know what art I'm making and I like what I make. So that's neat. <laughs> and so it, it's kind of like every artist kind of has to find their unique place. Um, and sometimes it sells, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Or sometimes you have to keep kind of, uh, as brought up way back, is that sometimes you have to like keep going until something kind of sparks at the end, and then that's what makes sense. Um, and I don't know. Sometimes, or a lot of times, people, uh, someone will will get success or reach fame, whatever that might mean. And then they'll go back and see all of the other stuff that they'd put out that no one ever saw and was like, oh, this stuff was actually brilliant the whole time. We just yeah, Leonard, saw Skinner, it. Leonard Skinner was like, the, yeah. <laughs> the first album didn't sell, nobody knew about it. And in Sweet Home Alabama, and mm. uh, then they discovered Freebird and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> that was kind of an interesting, yeah, Led Zeppelin one. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean... Um, and that's kind of the other thing is that like it it sucks, but like sometimes it, it doesn't really matter uh how good something is if if no one sees it, then uh it won't be recognized until someone finds it <laughs> but for you personally, does that matter if you produce it, it meets your needs and it's good and it it meets your standards. Yeah. You want people to see it, but does it matter if they do or not? I mean, I want people to see it in the sense of like, mommy, look what I drew, you know? <laughs> but uh, in in the other sense, it's like, yeah, if, if enough people like it and it changes, you know, it makes some people happy, I'm, I'm all right with that. <laughs> and sure, I think... Is every artist like that? I hope so. Uh, but there's probably more than likely some terrible people that are just like, oh, yeah, I want to make sure everyone hears my stuff. And that's probably not the right lesson. But as we kind of discussed earlier, uh, those people thrive anyways. <laughs> yeah, they tend to um, beat the door so hard that somebody decides to open it just to shut them up. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to add before I close this out? <laughs> no. Piper says hi. <laughs> uh, two dogs here that have been mostly pretty good throughout the whole recording process. So, <laughs> well, Three hours and one bark. That's not bad. Yeah, yeah it's not bad at all. <laughs> Considering what they're capable of, that's really good. <laughs> um. Yeah, so once again, I guess, plug whatever it is that you want to plug, if not yourself. <laughs> Humanity, <laughs> the golden rule. Yeah, wash your hands and all that mess. I'll even leave that one out, just the golden rule. Yeah, sure. Um, it's just, it sounds so simple, but really, yeah. if people actually behave that way, we'd be a hell of a lot better off as oh, a world. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's also kind of the, uh, kind of an inverted golden rule because the golden rule is, uh, treat others the way you would like to be treated. But there's also the, uh, do not treat others the way that they would, that you would not like to be treated. Uh, which seems like an unnecessary, uh, complication, but some people like to be treated yeah, no, very people, differently than yeah, others. Some people so, just get into being the victim so they want to make everybody else the victim. <laughs> so having that uh that negative inverse on that actually kind of makes a lot more sense and people don't make pedantic arguments about uh, <laughs> or just simple treat people like you know deep down they should be treated sure yeah <laughs> uh well i'm santiago ramones i'm michael murphy you can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music and this podcast, leave reviews and all that stuff. And uh, you can listen to my composery stuff on my website, like 
my master's recital or the stuff that's on my SoundCloud that's like electronic and different and stuff. And speaking of electronic stuff, I make music with PowerCycle, a experimental electronic trio. And we have an album that is completely improvised that is streaming everywhere called Too Many Damn Cables. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.